Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Throws across his body, and he got it! Looking away, McKenna around third, throw from the outfield is up the line, inside the park home run! Deep gone! Whoa! And he makes a catch up against the wall. And he's going to watch it fly. Strike three called. He got him on strikes. And welcome to another episode of The Voice of the Turtle, a podcast feature of the Bless You Boys website. That's SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. You'll find us on the web at www.blessyouboys.com. Also on Twitter at Bless You Boys and on Facebook at facebook.com slash byb.tigers. I'm your host, Hook Slide, here along with Rob Rojacki. Rob, on a scale of Tom Gorzolani to Mariano Rivera, how's your week been? Um, I'll go with a buck farmer. Oh, yeah, that bad, been, huh? It's been tough. It's been a busy week at work, but, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I, I did part of it to myself, too. I, I, I was dumb. I, was, I just made a stupid decision. I went to Ikea Whoa. this week. Yeah, so uh, it was it was a rough day, and I missed most of the uh, most of both of the Chicago games because I was putting together furniture. Going to IKEA has got to be the equivalent of like I don't know calling for Neftali Feliz from the pen, don't you think? I mean, that might be going to Tom Gorzolani from the pen. <laughs> like sometimes it's necessary, but you really don't want to do it, and uh, you usually get burned. Yeah, I I hear you. I hear you. Thankfully, I don't live anywhere near an IKEA, so that's not even really a temptation. Like you have to really decide to be that dumb for me to say I'm going to drive you know an hour and a half to go and and uh, tackle that. So, but no, I, I'm with you. It's been kind of a busy week for me too. I managed to somehow miss uh, pretty much all of the Tiger games this <laughs> this week. I think I caught part of one of the uh, Cubs games and uh, part of one of the Rangers games. But so. Uh, yeah, here's hoping to a much uh, more interactive week uh, and uh, no IKEA trips along the way. But uh, yeah, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to talk about Justin Verlander's return to form, the Tigers' actual chances of getting into the wild card, Dave Dombrowski's new gig. We'll take some listener questions. And before we do all of that, we're going to go rounding the bases and tell you the one thing that's got Nick Castellanos back on track. That's next up after the break on rounding the bases. Ten-pound ready delivers as a fly ball left field. This one's deep. This one's got a chance, and this ball is gone. Hogan. Ian Kinsler delivers the walk-off. Number six for Ian. He rounds third. Heads into the mob scene at home, and the Tigers take the series from KC. A walk-off home run from Kinsler. All right, so let's go round trip and round the bases. 
The Tigers are coming off a 5-5 five and five road trip, uh, which pretty much kind of fits in with what we expect of this team, I think, at this point. Uh, you know, pretty much a 500 team. Going 5-5, five and five, they lost 2-3 of three in Kansas City, lost 2-3 of three in Houston, but then they swept that Chicago series. Rob, let's talk about the Chicago series because the Kansas City series was not that great. Houston was not really that much fun uh, to read about. Like I said, I didn't get to see a lot of it, but uh, even reading about it was just sort of depressing and sad. But Chicago was fun, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, to see a team go out and just hit the way they did, um, it kind of makes you a little bit frustrated because you're like, you know, where the heck was that all season long when the bullpen was imploding left and right? Um, but it was it was nice to see them you know, take advantage of a hitter-friendly environment, to say the least, and really just kind of pound a team that has actually been pretty good. You know, the Cubs are primed for a playoff spot themselves, and to really just kind of take them behind the woodshed was a uh, was a nice, nice little series. I think the highlight for me has got to be Daniel Norris, not only going out in batting practice and apparently destroying a scoreboard uh, in the process, but then coming out against, was it John Lester, I think, and hitting a no-doubter, to deep center field that that's just if you're the Cubs at that point you, you might as well just throw in the towel right yeah I mean that game was over as soon as as soon as Norris took that swing and it actually looked like a pretty good swing too you know I was impressed uh, sometimes you get these pitchers just kind of lunging at the ball and they get lucky and the ball barely scrapes over the fence uh, or even into the basket like we saw <laughs> with a couple of those home runs during the Chicago series um, but with Norris it was nice to see you know him put a good swing on the ball and really kind of lofted out to you know, deep center there. I think I saw something, a graphic during one of those games, that that was actually the deepest home run of the series for the Tigers. So he was you know, outgunning Miguel Cabrera, J.D. Martinez, and all those other guys. Well, yeah, shaving with an axe, you know. That, that'll, that'll give you the extra oomph that you need. Maybe he finds something special in, in that van that he lives in to aid his power. I'm not really sure. But uh, that was... Uh, yeah, that, that whole series in Chicago, I know it was only two games. I know it's a, it's a small sample size and all of that. Uh, I didn't realize personally that, that the Chicago Park, Wrigley Field, played to, to hitters. I mean, you know it's the Windy City. You know that you're going to get some wind-aided home runs. But to me, that was like, my goodness, it's it's practically Coors Field at this point. Yeah, it, it can really play pretty small, especially when the wind is blowing out to left field, like we saw a couple in both of those games. Um, but sometimes it can actually play pretty big, too. I know that I was looking at the park factors before the series and uh, and Wrigley Field was actually playing more pitcher friendly than Comerica Park this season, which is, you know, impressive considering the size of their respective outfields. Uh, Wrigley Field, you know, kind of seems like this little bandbox, but when the wind's blowing in, it can be very, very tough on, on hitters. But that definitely wasn't the case in this series when you get guys, uh, you know, hitting pop-ups for home runs, basically. Yeah, it seemed like the offense really came to life in that series. I don't remember what the final totals were in terms of, you know, combined hits over those two games. It was somewhere in the 35 to 40 mark, I want to say. It was a lot. 40, they had 40 hits, 25 runs scored. I've got all the numbers right here. 20. They had 19, 19 extra base hits in that series, including 10 doubles and a triple. So not everything was just, you know, a pop fly home run. They were really putting good swings on the ball and, you know, hitting it to all fields. And yet, and yet, in the midst of all of this wonderfulness and the offense has come to life and they're just hitting the ball like crazy, you take a game like the second game of that series where they leap out immediately to a 7 to nothing start, and I think in any normal circumstance you'd say, that's it, that's game over, right? I mean, even the best 
offenses, even the above league average offenses are only going to score around five and a half to six runs a game. So a seven to nothing lead should seem like, hey, that's, we're on lockdown now. You might as well just phone it in the rest of the game. And yet... The Cubs somehow come back and score eight runs. The Tigers end up winning 15-8. to eight. I mean, I think that almost, in a, in a nutshell, that game shows what's going on with this team in terms of the hitting is just fine, but the pitching is just, it's a disaster. Yeah, the pitching has been just awful all season long. Uh, you got to, I don't, I don't necessarily want to say you got to feel bad for Chicago, but this is a team that went out and scored 16 runs in two games and lost both the games by a healthy margin. <laughs> Um, you know, the Tigers giving up eight runs in both games. Daniel Norris comes out and gives up three runs right after his team gave him a seven-run lead. And, you know, not that's not all his fault. I think that one of the home runs hit by Chris Bryant was one of those pop flies that landed in those stupid little baskets <laughs> out in, uh, in Wrigley's left field there. Uh, Rajay, Rajay Davis looked like he was underneath it ready to make the catch in yes. any other ballpark. It seems like that's probably just, you know, allowed out. But... <laughs> You know, those dumb little baskets from, what was the story, the, the fans in the 80s would jump on the field or whatever? Yes. yes. Um, that, you know, those things, that, those kind of ticked me off in that series. And I know that Ian Kinsler hit a home run into one of them too, but, you know, still, I think it's about time to get rid of those those things. Yeah, I think the, the story that I heard from Dan Dickerson on the radio was that sometime in the 70s or 80s, like you said, that uh, occasionally fans would imbibe a little too much and try to get out and walk on, on the top of the fence and would fall, <laughs> fall off onto the field. I, I'm hoping after this show, I'm going to go out and look and see if I can maybe find some YouTube clips because that just sounds like great entertainment. But yeah, the end result is now you've got these ridiculous baskets that end up aiding home runs along the way. Let's talk a little bit about what did you see from Miguel Cabrera during this, uh, not only in the Chicago series, but you know, beginning with, with the series in uh, in Kansas City and then through Houston. He's on fire. Yeah. It's you know, there's no other way to put it. Um, Nolan on the site put up a post today that said that Cabrera is hitting 500 with a on base percentage over 600 since coming off the disabled list. You know, he's just superhuman and is able to come back like nothing was wrong. And uh, it's, you know, incredibly impressive. And his entire season has been that way, too. He's got a uh, 193 weighted runs created plus, uh, a metric that measures just how far above average a player is, with 100 being the league average. Uh, this is best total of his career uh, if the season were to end today. He had a 192 WRC plus in 2013, and that was with that, you know, awful September when he was banged up. Um, his power's dropped off a little bit this year. He's only got 15 home runs. And a 238 isolated power, which is underneath both his career rates and several of the seasons he's had lately. Um, but, you know, to see him come off this, you know, pretty bad capturing, missing six, seven weeks and hitting the way he is, it's he's he's superhuman. They're, we're running out of words to say about him. Yeah, and to see him continue to do this, like you said, not only coming off of, you know, injuries uh, and just immediately snap back, return to form. Uh, but this is, you know, we're talking about numbers from 2013, and then there was a 2014 season, and now we're to the 2015 season. At some point, you have to expect that Miguel Cabrera is going to experience what all human beings experience in some form of decline, and yet I'm not seeing it. I mean, I see the guy that, that is just as potent and lethal as, as he was in 2012, 2013. Yeah, he's just incredible. Um, I don't know when he's going to start declining there, but it definitely isn't happening yet. And with the way he's hitting right now, you can't imagine that it's going to happen sometime within the next year or two. Um, he's 32 years old right now, uh, which isn't 
young by any means, but it's also not ancient. And with the way that other Hall of Fame talents have aged over the years, you'd think that he'd be able to continue this well into his mid and late 30s, but we'll see how it goes. So let's let's present the hypothetical. I'll, I'll put the question to you. As far as I know, I haven't checked the most recent numbers, but I want to say that his batting average is still the, the highest in the American League, and yet he does not qualify for the batting title as of this moment because of the, the time lost due to the injury, and you have to have a certain number of plate appearances in order to qualify for the title. Uh, we've had a couple posts on the site about the the possibility that he could still you know, qualify for it and still keep his average high enough to actually still win the title this year. So, Rob, if you're a betting man, where do you put your money? Is is Miguel Cabrera going to win the batting title this year? Oh, absolutely. Um, he's not that far off of the qualifier. Uh, I did the math yesterday, and I believe he only needs to average four plate appearances per game for the next ten games or so to get back into uh, the conversation as far as qualifiers go. And there's also a clause within that rule that if someone is leading the batting race but doesn't have enough plate appearances to qualify, they can take, they'll give them, you know, hitless plate appearances or whatever to calculate what their actual batting average would be, and they could still win the batting title that way. And right now, Cabrera is uh, nearly 40 points clear of the second guy in the league, Jason Kipnis. Hmm. Uh, so even if he doesn't quite get to that, that plate appearance marker, which is uh, 502 plate appearances um, for the whole season, uh, he's still you know miles ahead of Kipnis and would probably still end up winning his fourth batting title. That's amazing. So you're basically saying they could deduct points, you know, give him a hitless plate appearances along the way, and he would still be uh, wide enough of a margin ahead of Kipnis to take that title. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's just absolutely ridiculous. Oh yeah, from legend to legend we go. From Cabrera. To Verlander, and the question continues. We've talked about this, I think, on the last two podcasts. The question still remains Is Justin Verlander back? But now we've got a little more data to kind of aid our answer to that. Yeah, and we kind of hinted that he might be back in the last episode, but I think by this point, we just need to say it. He's back. Um, he, for the season, you know, even with those rough starts that he had early on, he's has a 3.86 ERA and a 3.97 fielding independent pitching or FIP. Um, and then in his last eight starts, you know, after he, those few rough outings under his belt, he's been vintage Verlander, really. I mean, other than the 100-mile-an-hour fastball, the rest of the numbers look the same. His last eight starts, he has a 2.65 ERA, a whip under one, uh, and 50 strikeouts to just eight walks. You know, it's really incredible. You know, at one point last night, uh, or on Friday night, for those listening to the podcast a little bit later, um, you know, Verlander looked like he was in trouble in the early innings. He wasn't really commanding things well. And then he gets out of, you know, the second and third inning with only a couple of runs allowed. I think only one of them was earned. And, you know, ends up shutting the Rangers down the rest of the way and working seven innings. You know, it's just, it really was, you know, like a performance from 2011 or 2012. And yet the smokescreen persists. And I'll admit it, I, I see it. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to look past the fact. I know that the team is not giving him the run support that he needs. And so the end result is that when Justin Verlander goes to the mound, you're not seeing Tigers' victories as a result, and that's completely not his fault. And, and yet it's still hard, I think, for some fans, and I, I would count myself among them, to uh, see that a Justin Verlander start is coming up and to kind of go, okay, well, this is on lockdown then. We've, we've certainly got a win in the bag. Even though, skip the offense, right? They can't seem to perform for him for whatever reason. He's still pitching like the old Justin Verlander. And, and he seemed to, uh, I love that, that quote that he gave 
a couple of starts back when somebody said, is this vintage Verlander? And he said, what do you mean vintage? You know, that's just me. And I kind of went, okay, let's hold on, hold on. I mean, it is vintage Verlander, buddy. You, you, you put up some bad numbers in the last, uh, I don't know, year, year and a half or whatever it is. So yeah, it's vintage, but uh, you know, how, how big a role is this, you know, the, the offense, the, the run support that they're giving him? I think it definitely plays a role in how people see it. You know, some people are still looking at pitcher wins as far as, you know, how to measure a player's performance. Verlander had 15 wins last year, which a lot of people would still consider a good year. But, you know, his ERA was four and a half. And he looked nothing like the guy that dominated baseball in 2011 and 2012. Um, It's really just kind of, you know, it's disappointing that the offense is putting up the numbers for him to win. You know, he could have five or six wins in his 12 starts already if the offense would score him some dang runs. Um, but, you know, it, it's Verlander Day, which is kind of, you know, kind of the mm. term that we had coined uh, anytime he was starting, you know, during right. his dominant years. Um, you know, that has become kind of an event again to, you know, you're going to make sure that you tune into the game because Verlander's pitching again. And it it's kind of fun to have that back. Yeah, I remember I said on the last podcast or maybe the podcast prior to that that, uh, just because he was spiking, you know, up and down, up and down, it would be seven runs a game, and then one run, and then six, and then two, and then seven again, and that to me kind of created a trend of inconsistency, and that was something that that kind of bothered me in, in terms of saying, is he really back? And I said, well, he needs to show that he can be consistent uh, and not have these awful, awful outings. Well, he's he's done it. I think I'm still looking for maybe just just one more. Give me just one more. Really solid outing. It doesn't have to be a no hitter. It doesn't have to be a shutout. J- just just one more outing where it's you know two, three, maybe even four runs. And I, I think I'll finally start to believe that you know Justin Verlander is well and truly back. As far as players that are not necessarily back but maybe making strides forward, we got to talk a little bit about Nick Castellanos. Uh, he seems to have broken out of the funk, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And, you know, the the broadcast crews on TV have been pointing out, you know, his numbers in August and since the All-Star break and everything. But this actually happened, I think, back when he was, quote-unquote, benched in New York uh, in late June. Um, he wasn't hitting very well at that time. He sat out for, I think, most of that series against the Yankees. Um, but to Brad Osmus's credit or to whoever was the one that kind of talked him through that, he's really been on fire since then. He's batting two eighty five with a 346 on base percentage and has nine home runs and 34 RBIs in, you know, just, I think it's just under two months now since that benching. Uh, and it's, you know, he's been, you know, the kind of middle of the lineup bat that we were expecting all along. Yeah. And certainly it helps his case to have a two home run game and hitting a grand slam. I mean, those are the big flashy things that, uh, kind of cement those opinions, I think in people's minds when you, when you see him the next time and say, Oh yeah, that's, that's Nick Castellanos. We, we expect some big things coming up. And, you know, I'm not sure what to credit the, the turnaround to. I mean, we've got certainly some inside sources that uh, have suggested that it, it's a, it's an overcoaching issue and that there were too many hands in the, what's what's the term? Too many cooks in the kitchen, I guess, trying to, you know, retool his swing. And he seems to have come back to a more simplistic way of saying, no, I'm just going to hit like the way I, you know, used to just go up there and hit. Uh, Jim Price, in fact, uh, talked about that for months and said, I think it looks like Nick is just, he's thinking too hard at the plate about his mechanics and he needs to stop thinking, just go up there and hit. Sure looks like he's done that and it seems to be working. It does. And I think that this kind of hands-off approach that they're taking isn't necessarily resulting in him being more aggressive 
at the plate. If we're going to look at something that has really kind of changed with him, I think we got to look at his walk rate. Um, he's mm-hmm. walking almost 9% of the time since that little benching in New York. Uh, that's above his season percentage of 7.4% and his career rate of just 6.6%. So he's being a little bit more selective. Um, he's still striking out you know, 24 25% of the time, which isn't great, but in this day and age you can kind of live with that. Um, but he's you know, finding the right pitches to hit. Uh, he has 20 extra base hits in the last two months. Um, and his 232 isolated power, I actually looked this up, his 232 isolated power, if he could carry that out for the entire season, it would be ranked 18th among qualified hitters uh, and tied with Edwin Encarnacion of the Blue Jays. So that kind of gives you an idea of just how well he's been hitting over the last couple of months. So you're telling me Nick is going to start walking the parrot? Well, that'd be nice. If you could, you know, I like the little chicken wing thing that Edwin Encarnacion does when he when he hits a home run. Um, I was listening. To, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. I was listening to uh, the Mets podcast, Amazing Avenue Audio, uh, a good pos- podcast that they do, um, and they uh, they were talking about Jonas Cespedes and that little bird that they found at the stadium there, and they were talking about how fun it would be if Cespedes could start doing that and have the little bird fly onto <laughs> have a little bird fly into his arm thought that was kind of funny. Uh, and then Cespedes goes out and hits three home runs for the Rock- for the Mets against the Rockies last night and just made the rest of us angry. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't really appreciate when the uh, people we trade away do that well. I mean, best of luck to you on a Cespedes, but come on, really? Let's, let's, no. It, it hurts. It just hurts. Well, maybe we'll get him back. It's, it's too early to say. Uh, going back to Nick Castellanos, though, um, Obviously, good to see him making strides uh, forward in 2015. I think the question that a lot of people are thinking, though, much like we were talking about with Justin Verlander just a minute ago, is it sustainable? Is is Castellanos going to be able to carry this forward uh, into 2016? You'd like to think so. Uh, with the <clears throat> improved walk rate, it, it seems to think, you know, I'd have to look kind of a little bit more into the numbers and what kind of pitches he's hitting, what he's laying off of, that type of thing. Um, but with the you know improved walk rate there, you'd like to think that he's being a little bit more selective at the plate and seeing the ball better, and that should carry over to 2016. But you know he went through kind of a hot stretch last summer too. It wasn't this long, but he was a little you know kind of through a hot. I think it was like maybe a hot month or so after the All Star break, and then cooled off since then. And you know we saw exactly how that worked over the early part of this season too. Did people give up on Nick too early? Do you think? I think so. You know, if anyone's given him up, given him up on him at this point, I think it's definitely too early. You know, it's still only his second season in the major leagues. He's still coming off, you know, a couple of seasons in the minor leagues where they asked him to learn new position. He's still only 23 years old, uh, and I think that he still has a chance to be a very good major league hitter. Not necessarily a very good major league third baseman. The jury's still out on whether or not he's going to stick there or not. But you know, if he can hit like this, they'll find a place for him. You see, I think expectations are everything in this discussion. Uh, and I, I think a lot of this had to do with just simply the expectations that were set for Nick Castellanos coming up and uh, sort of the package that we were sold on in 2014 and 2015. I want to say uh, that it was during last year's trade deadline. I, I, I could be getting this totally wrong. Um, at some point last year, there were some trade discussions come up. I want to say it was with the Rays when we were trying to acquire... David Price, that the news sort of leaked that they were interested in getting Castellanos, and Dave Dombrowski was very, very protective and said, absolutely not. He's, you know, one of our top top guys that we're not going to get rid of. 
news gets out, I think it sets that expectation that uh, you know we're dealing with a future all star here, and so it, it can be difficult to watch a guy like that, you know, sort of uh, take his lumps and go through this school of hard knocks and and go through this growing process. But it's absolutely essential. It is, and I think that the expectations were kind of set more so by a prospect starved fan base, if you will. You know, before Castellanos came up, who was the last real top prospect that the Tigers had? You had maybe Jacob Turner, who was up for a couple starts before he got traded. Uh, before that, maybe Rick Porcello or Justin Verlander. Uh, you know, we're going back a decade here where the Tigers really haven't had that much top homegrown talent. So, you know, you get a guy that's been on these prospect rankings and things, and people were kind of waiting to anoint him as the chosen one and, you know, declare him as a future all-star right away. And if he can be, you know, just kind of a solid major league player who's making the minimum, you know, it's pretty good. It's not exactly living up to the kind of hype that, you know, these other guys like Mike Trout and Bryce Harper, who are better prospects than Castellanos to begin with, <clears throat> if, you know, uh, if they're able to even just get some production of Castellanos, I think they need more than what they've got now. But if he starts hitting like that and at least offsetting some of his crappy defense, I think they're going to be okay. <laughs> let's just let's not pull any punches right crappy defense it is so well uh so we've covered cabrera verlander castellanos to me it sort of seems like uh, there's some good signs pointing forward but uh we're, we're more or less kind of looking towards 2016 to see how these pieces come together hopefully they do gel together and the tigers can be uh, competitive and, and get that pedal to the floor as as uh, mike Illich said he wants to do in 2016 so that was the Week in Review. We have rounded the bases. When we come back, we will go into our Warming in the Pens segment, and we'll tell you why the wild card chase just got a whole hell of a lot more difficult. Here's the 2-2. It's in the fly ball, right field. Deep and down the line, and gone! Victor Martinez with a two-run shot. Tigers back on top here in the seventh. Hailing it 7-6. All right, and we're back with a warming in the pen. <clears throat> warming in the pen. See, I do this every podcast. I, I don't know what the problem is. It's a tongue and lip thing. I don't know. We should probably fire the host and get. I think you can... need more beer. I don't more. <laughs> that's that's always the always a solution. I don't need the encouragement. I really don't. We are going to go warming in the pen and tell you why the wild card chase just got a lot more difficult. Let's look forward uh, here to the upcoming uh, sets of games this next week. Of course, the Tigers have already played a couple against Texas. Uh, they're they're going to finish out that series. They've got a game uh, against the Reds. They're going to go in a three game series against the Angels, and then another three game series against the Kansas City Royals. What do you kind of project uh, for the next week? Um, you know, I hate to kind of bring the doom here, but it really is, you know, kind of a tough slate of games. They've got, you know, eight of these nine games are against wild card contenders, uh, teams that are really gunning for playoff spots right now. Uh, they've not played well against the Angels at all, either here in Detroit or in Anaheim. Uh, so that series is looking a little bit rough. And then, you know, with the Royals, they've, scuffled a bit lately but they're still they still have the best record in the american league um and with the starting rotation in the state that it's in it, it could be you know a couple of ugly series coming up yeah I, i'm least excited i think about that that series against the angels because let's just face it the tigers don't ever beat the angels it's just for years and years and we ran stats on this back uh, earlier this year when they played in anaheim i i I want to say they've actually never, ever won a game in Anaheim. I know I'm exaggerating, but it's it's to that point where it's like, no, can we just 
not ever face them again or just, I don't know, forfeit those games so we don't have to go through the agony of, of watching them lose it inning by inning. Um, obviously, though, the, the big problem that you just alluded to, though, and I think why that wild card chase is extremely difficult now at this point, not that it wasn't before, but the starting rotation is is just like, I don't know, it's it's crumbling before our eyes with the news that Daniel Norris is going to be out for what it sounds like now four weeks uh, with the oblique strain, and uh, Anibal Sanchez has got some rotator cuff issues going on. What's What is even left now for this starting rotation that was already kind of sketchy to begin with? They traded away David Price that put a lot of weight on Justin Verlander and Anibal Sanchez. What 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 the actual hell do we do now? Well, we've got Justin Verlander and a pile of rubble in the starting rotation, unfortunately. Um, you know, as far as wild card hopes, I think that they're, you know, it's nice to kind of drum up a little bit interest with the Tigers climbing within three and a half games of the wild card, but this, I just don't see any way that this rotation is going to be able to keep it together. Um, the Tigers have Randy Wolf starting today, Saturday, against the Rangers. Matt Boyd is going to make a start on Sunday. And then you've got Buck Farmer uh, coming up to start in the makeup game against the Cincinnati Reds on Monday. Um, you know, that's three pitchers with, I think it was a combined 50 innings of Major League time this season. Uh, Randy Wolf, the veteran among them, who's 39, uh, hasn't pitched in the Major Leagues this season. The Blue Jays, you know, despite having a pretty good year in their for their AAA affiliate, the Blue Jays didn't call him up once when they badly needed pitching. And then, you know, you can't fault them for going out and acquiring a David Price. But, you know, there are other points where they needed pitching, and they completely passed over him. And it kind of tells you what exactly they think and what exactly Randy Wolf probably has left at this point. It's, yeah, like you said, I don't even know what to make of it. When the news came out that both Norris and Sanchez, you know, were going down, you just kind of go, well, then why even show up, I guess? I, I really do believe at some point they're just going to kind of crank open the bullpen doors and start wheeling out this old pitching machine, slap a Tigers jersey on the back of it, and just let it go. Because, I mean, hell, throw throw batting practice, and, and you're still going to record outs, you know, more, more times than, the, than they're going to score runs. It's just... A slew of names that are that are coming through that I you know most people I think don't even recognize the names. You have to go back and look. Who is Randy Wolf? I know he's been around for a long time, but what's he even been up to? Uh, yeah, Buck Farmer not really inspiring a whole lot of confidence at this point. So you kind of, as a fan, I think you have to get on this. I don't know. You, you got to decide: do the games even matter at this point? Are we just watching for pure entertainment? I I don't I don't even know. The uh, the interesting thing, though, that we've got here in our show notes is that we've got this makeup game coming in Cincinnati. The impact of that makeup game is that the Tigers pretty much don't get a day off, like, ever again. Yeah, they uh, they were originally scheduled to have an off day on Monday when they're playing the Reds. Um, but now, with that day filled, you know, they had an off day before the Cubs series last week. Their next off day isn't coming until September 17th. Uh, oh, you know, a full month after that last off day, That's and they like only have, a year away, and they only have two more off days left this season. And I believe that they have a double header scheduled at yes. some point within this run too. So that's right. a lot of innings that's going to be thrown on the staff. Now, granted, a lot of that is going to be after the September first date, where they can call up more pitchers. But still, that's you know quite a few innings to put on that pitching staff, one that's you know already crumbling before our eyes. Uh, and I think that the Tigers do deserve a little bit of credit for going out and grabbing Randy Wolf for this. You know, they've got a lot of young arms in their rotation right now. 
You know, Norris is on the disabled list. They've been talking about limiting Matt Boyd's innings. Um, and to grab a veteran off the scrap heap there, you know, he's really just kind of a hired gun at this point. But he's basically, you know, kind of abating the injury risk that comes with giving some of these guys a little bit too many innings. So I think that they deserve a bit of credit for going out and getting a guy. You know, it would have been nice to see them call up some other type of organizational arm uh, who's been pitching, you know, for Toledo or Erie or something like that. But, you know, I don't really know what the trickle-down effect of that would be. You know, if you, go, if you call up a guy from Toledo, then someone else has come up to fill his spot in Toledo, and that could have ramifications all throughout the system. So grabbing Wolf was a, a good idea, at least at the time. We'll see how it plays out tonight. It could be very, 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 very ugly, but... It, it's but better than it's better than having your young guys get injured, right? And I, I think that's the the beauty of where we're at right now in the situation. It's not a fun place to be, but you know, you say we'll see how Randy Wolf does, and it might be really ugly. But guys, it really does not matter at this point. The I think the season's pretty well flushed, which you know we were talking about. Even though last week when we did the podcast, I quoted the number from FanGraphs that the Tigers had a four percent chance of making the playoffs at all this this season. That number has since I think more than doubled with with the nice little run that they had with against the Cubs and and so on and so forth and I think they were on a three game winning streak there before dropping the game against Texas last night. They managed to double their wild card chances or their playoff chances via fan graphs to like 8.7 or 8.8%. That's wonderful. And then the rotation just kind of, you know, falls apart and we have injuries coming and the the thing that I'm most upset about I was really looking forward to watching Daniel Norris pitch. And now, you know, damn the baseball gods. We can't even enjoy our shiny new prospects for a while. They have to fall off the shelf and break like a shitty Christmas toy that got made in China. I mean, what is this? It's like the Christmas toy that you get and then you realize it needs batteries and you don't have the right kind. (laughs) Um, You know, losing Norris is kind of a bummer. He really he was looking pretty good. Uh, you know, despite the couple home runs he gave up in his start against the Cubs, uh, definitely the home run he hit helps. Um, but to have him come out and really kind of make some solid adjustments, pitching through, you know, kind of a little rough stretch during his previous start against the Royals, it was nice to kind of see him develop a little bit. Yeah, and then you get this injury, and, you know, now we're running out 39-year-old Randy Wolf uh, and a couple other guys. So it's definitely not as fun, but at this point, it's kind of just getting through the season. Right. As for the as for the playoff odds, um, this is kind of how fickle they can be. The Tigers were at over eight percent yesterday, and then they lost, but did not lose any ground in the playoff race last night. And now they're down to just five point seven percent today. I don't even. All right, that's that's a good spot to just end this. How, how do you drop three four percent in one day? Without losing any ground, I'm not sure. But but at the same time, it does. You know, it is kind of a. You're running out of time, I guess. Is you're running you're running out of time, and the Tigers have so many teams in between them and an actual playoff spot that it's just so hard to see them, you know, making up enough ground to actually get back into the race. Um, the you know, if they were just trying to chase down the Angels, who currently lead the wild card race, and they were the next team in that, you'd think that they would maybe be able to make a run. Uh, they have a few games coming up against the Angels probably going to lose two or three of them because they never play well against the angels but at the same time you know you could see a way that they could make up that ground but with four teams between them and the angels for that second wild card slot and with toronto running away with the first one it's just it seems like there are way too many things that have to go on for the tigers to even have a chance 
Right, because who's sitting between them in that spot? You mentioned the Angels. I want to say the Rangers are in that discussion too, aren't they? The Angels are, the Rangers, the Baltimore Orioles, uh, and the Minnesota Twins. Oh, and the Tampa and the Tampa Bay Rays are all within right. that mix. That's right. That's, what is that? Six teams within three and a half games of each other for that last wild card slot. Sure. And the Tigers, the Tigers play plenty of games against these t- guys. They have a right. series against Tampa Bay, a series, another series against Texas, including the two games they have this weekend, a series against the Angels, and I think two more against the Twins. So there are a lot of games to be left to be played. But you know, with the rotation in the state that's in, the bullpen crapping all over everything every chance it gets i just don't see any way that they can make up that ground no i mean it's it, obviously it's a long and, and has been for a very very long time but i guess th- there is some maybe excitement that you could draw out of this by saying that they've got two more games against texas coming up they've got the three games against the angels these are all direct wild card competitors so if baseball being baseball can sometimes be weird and swing your direction you know, if they take the next two games against Texas, somehow manage to sweep the Angels, uh, then, they, I don't know, then maybe you're right back in this conversation and we're being stupid and having false hope all over again. Yeah, it would be kind of fun to have a little bit of false hope uh, going through September here. You're a masochist. A little bit. <laughs> uh, I think, And I think this season is really kind of what's done it to me. You know, you get, <laughs> like we've said, you get Justin Verlander going out and throwing seven shutout innings, and the team still finds a way to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, had they, you know, had they won, you know, maybe a game or two of those, they'd be right in the thick of the of the wild card race. But unfortunately, they haven't been able to pull those out, and they're still kind of on the outside looking in at this point. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Flip some coins. I don't know what do, what do you do? You, you lick a rabbit's foot, or try to avoid walking under ladders, or wh- whatever the crazy superstitions might be. But uh, certainly hoping that the Tigers can make up some ground in the wild card. Although maybe if you're like me and you're not a masochist like Rob, you just wish that they'd just freaking lose all the time and get it over with so we could move on to whatever comes next. But now you know everything you need to know about me. And that will wrap up our warming in the pen segment. When we come back, we'll go high and tight. The question we're asking is who wins in a showdown between Dave Dombrowski and Al Avila when we get back? A fly ball, center field. This one's deep. Going back, Borges at the warning track, looking up, and it's gone! A home run! Amazing. How about it? First chance to hit 400, and Miguel Cabrera delivers in his first at-bat of the day. All right, and this is our high and tight segment when we talk about all the hot topics. Oh, we need hot topics. It's just been such a fun season. Hot topics keep things interesting. The question we're going to be asking in this segment is who wins in a showdown between Dave Dombrowski and Al Avila. The big news, of course, coming this past week that Dave Dombrowski, he's public enemy number one, I think. I mean, the guy gets picked up for the uh, the new gig as the president of baseball operations for the Boston Red Sox. You know, I, I, I get that Dave Dombrowski, Rob, he, he was going to go to another team. I think we all kind of had come to grips with the fact that that was going to happen. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about him ending with the Boston Red Sox. With 2013 just not far enough in the rearview mirror at this point, I, I think that's, that's especially angering to me. It does sting a little bit, but at the same time, I'm thankful that he didn't somehow end up with another AL Central team. So at least we've got that part going for us. Um but yeah, uh, having him land in Boston with the way that they've you know kind of battered the Tigers over the last few years, especially in 2013, it 
it definitely stings a little bit. And I can't, you know, fault him. You know, he's trying to find a job and everything, but still, it's 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 just a tough situation. Oh, no, best best of luck to Dave Browski, absolutely. I think he did the Tigers a huge, huge service in the 14 years that he was here. I think he left them in a very, very good position going forward uh, before he was let go. But there is that kind of association of, you know, you don't want to see him in the in the red B for Boston and, and kind of hanging out there and doing his damage in that area. The, the only thing that I'm drawing comfort from at this point is, is the mental visualization of Dombrowski walking in, sitting in his office. He's got the paper. He's shuffling, checking things out. Where do we stand? And he looks down and goes, Rick Porcello. Shit. I thought I got rid of that guy. <laughs> now he's got to deal with that problem all over again. Now, the, the, the question that has been sort of bandied about at least around here in Grand Rapids on the various uh, media outlets and sports, sports talk radio is does this make Al Avila's job even more difficult or, or maybe the better question is, does this add any pressure to where Al Avila is at now having Dombrowski in a position where he is, you know, in charge of, like you said, not a central division team, but it's an American league team. Um, does that make things trickier for Al Avila? I don't know that it makes things more difficult or adds more pressure for Avila. I think he's already under enough pressure, especially from his boss, to win a championship. Um, and having Dombrowski land in Boston probably doesn't really affect that too much, uh, especially from the fan base's perspective. Um, like I kind of alluded to, with Dombrowski not going to a AL Central team, uh, had he gone to, you know, say the White Sox or someone like that, I think that would have definitely made his job more difficult, having to compete directly with Dombrowski day in and day out. But, you know, with him over in the AL East, it's, you know, they still play the Red Sox a couple times a year, but I don't know that it necessarily affects exactly what Avila is trying to do. Yeah, and I'm sure Al Avila is, like you said, probably more interested in making sure that, that Mike Illich is pleased than he is with necessarily competing against Dave Dombrowski or, for that matter, any other general manager. But you know darn well that if somehow in 2016 the Tigers... Uh, let, let, let's say that they win the division but still get knocked out early in the playoffs and Boston wins the division and somehow goes all the way to the World Series or, God forbid, wins the World Series, the fans in Detroit are going to freaking riot if Dave Dombrowski in his first year out or even his second year out brings home a World Series ring for the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, that, I'm, I'm just trying to not think about that type of scenario right now. Um, I apologize. You know, he he definitely could do something like that, especially with that payroll and with a with a you know pretty robust farm system that they have. Um, whether he's trading away prospects like his ML was here in Detroit, or getting rid of one or two of the bad contracts on that Red Sox roster right now, uh, he's you know he's got a lot to work with over there. Um, and you know, if he does somehow turn them around and win a World Series. Yeah, that's... Uh, I'm just not going to think about that. Oh, they've had enough of them, don't you think? I mean, in the last 10 years, get out of the pool already and let somebody else have a chance, you filthy... I used to love the Red Sox, too. I really did. Loved them in 86. I could, I have, still have the entire 1986 lineup memorized. I could recite it for you, but you'd probably fall asleep. Here's what, what I'm looking at with, with Dombrowski going to Boston. Just some maybe highlights for me of what uh, what I'm looking to see. Can he move, or does he even want to move, the Pablo Sandoval contract and the Hanley Ramirez contract? Because those are huge millstones right now for him and for making that team viable in 2016. Uh, what you alluded to, uh, Dombrowski with that pill, I, I want to say, it's been a while since I looked at the numbers, but I want to say Boston's got a higher payroll than Detroit, or it's very, very similar 
So as you said, that's that's an issue. What's he going to do when he's got that much money to spend? They have a, a good farm system, as you mentioned. So where do you where do you see Dombrowski going? That what's his his mo going to be there? Is it going to be spend high, buy up all the good free agents in 2016? Do you think he'll end up depleting the Red Sox farm system, or will we see a different side of of Dave Dombrowski when he doesn't have Mike Illich in his ear saying, "Win me, win me, win me that ring." I think we will see a little bit of a different side of him. Um, you know, he is built kind of from within before his days with Miami and Montreal. Um, you know, they've got they've already got the pieces in place with a great farm system. And the Tigers, you know, the Tigers had a pretty good farm system when he first came on and was trying to build that way. And then they made, among other things, the Miguel Cabrera trade that kind of depleted the farm system. And ever since then, it's kind of been win now, win now, win now. Uh, with the Red Sox, you know, they don't have an aging owner getting in his ear every day about winning a title. And I think for them, it's going to be more about sustained success. Uh, you know, having the ability to spend money to get out of uh, his predecessor's mistakes is going to be a little bit frightening. But at the same time, uh, another thing I'm looking at here is that, you know, the Red Sox kind of have to spend to compete with some of the other teams in that division. Um, you know, you've got the Yankees spending far and away more than the Red Sox are right now. Uh, the Blue Jays look like they're starting to kind of open up the uh, open up their pocketbooks there and spend a bit more money. And we'll see what they do about you know David Price this offseason. They've already got you know kind of an expanding payroll there. Um, so you know with the added money there, Dombrowski also has a little bit more petition. Uh, during his days in Detroit, Dombrowski had you know, far and away more money to work with than the other four teams in his division. And now he doesn't necessarily have that advantage. So while having extra money is nice, yes, relative to the rest of his teams in his division, it's not necessarily the same advantage that he had here. And hey, Red Sox fans, enjoy Dombrowski building out the bullpen. This is this is probably my favorite angle on this whole story, is that our, our sister site, SB Nation site, uh, Over the Monster, uh, had an article go up couple days ago maybe a day ago uh, on this very subject you know with with the boston bullpen needing quite a bit of work as well as some other areas in the organization uh the the the, the gist of the post was basically to say what can we expect dave dombrowski to do with this bullpen and he kind of reviewed uh the history of dave dombrowski in the detroit bullpen and i'm reading this article and just i'm I'm laughing it's it's shaden freud i know that but i'm still looking at it going yeah (laughs) just simply reviewing the history of Dombrowski with the Tigers bullpen was painful. And then I thought, yeah, Hey, it's your problem. Now guys have fun, (laughs) have fun with that. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what Al Avila will do differently about the bullpen here. So I don't necessarily want to laugh too much just yet, but at the same time, yeah, it is, it is kind of funny to see them already, already starting to panic about what their bullpen may be down the road. And Hey, maybe we see Miguel Cabrera hit a, hit a grand slam in a playoff game against Boston at some point to, uh, you know, kind of turn the tables on them. I, I think I just got an erection, actually. That's awesome. Speaking of bullpens, we had this game in Houston, uh, and there was there was some issues, once again, with the way that Brad Osmus is handling this bullpen management, his in-game strategy, his seeming lack of understanding about how to increase the team's maximum win percentage, the odds of them winning these games. Uh, I'm going to let I'm gonna let you go free free form on this rob because i've i have bitched about osmus in the bullpen long enough give us your best shot 
Well, the reason we brought up this topic is the ninth inning of their the Tigers' final game in Houston last weekend when Tom Gorzolani was allowed to pitch to, I think it was three right-handed batters, mm-hmm. uh, ended up giving up a triple to one of them. And then, you know, Dembr- then, not Dombrowski, um, Brad Osmus brings in Alex Wilson to face Jose Altuve. And instead of walking Altuve, who is an all-star player and probably the best hitter on that team, he proceeds to try to pitch to Altuve. And Wilson said that he was, you know, trying to pitch around him and miss his spot. But at the same time, I think you ground him by having your catcher stand there and give the, him four intentional balls and then deal with whoever was beyond that. Um, and uh, Osmus's rationale for it was kind of something that we've heard before. Uh, you know, he was worried about the Astros bringing Preston Tucker to the plate, who has hurt the Tigers already this season. He has a few home runs against them, mm-hmm. including, I think, a game-tying home run earlier in that series. But the the thing that just blows my mind is that Osmus works into these hypothetical scenarios, and he manages based on what he thinks is going to happen in these, you know, in these far, and maybe not so far-fetched scenarios, but, you know, I think you've got to manage for what's in front of you more so than what you think is going to happen. You know, he's trying to avoid this guy coming to the plate as a pinch hitter when he's got a better hitter right in front of him already. And I think that that is, you know, it's just one of those things that is just so damn frustrating. Uh, and I, I can't wait for that to go away. Let's hope that that goes away. I, I think, the, for me, the, the issue that I notice in that scenario or scenarios like that is that he continues to run guys like Gorzolani out there and create these awful situations and then goes to a much better pitcher and says, hey, you know, best of luck getting out of this jam that somebody else created because look, it's it's not easy to get out of those situations. Now Alex Wilson looks bad because he could not get out of, you know, the, the runner on third situation. Uh, you're going to get out of it sometimes. You're not going to get out of it sometimes. I have a feeling, though, that if it's Alex Wilson coming in at the start of that inning clean, he's got a much better chance. The numbers suggest he's certainly got a better chance of getting out of that inning than Tom Gorzolani does, and yet Austin continues to go with this uh, send my worst guy out of the pen and kind of work you know, from there. It just it does not work. It has not worked. Why does he continue to do it? How do we get this to stop? Uh, it just it's it's an endless list of I think unanswerable questions at this point, and I think that the the frustrating thing for me isn't so much that he uses Gorzolani in that role. Um, you know, with the Tigers kind of being a little bit out of the race, you know, we talked about they're kind of within wild within earshot of the wild card, but with them kind of falling out of the race, you know, if he comes out and says out of the game, you know, I was trying to you know evaluate Gorzolani a little bit more and see how that new arm slot is working, that's okay. I'd be okay with him, you know, saying I'm trying to evaluate this team a little bit more or something like that. And I get that he, you know, he's trying to still win games and get back in the race. But at the same time, if you're trying to do that, you can't be, you know, running Gorzolani out there in that type of situation. I think you've got to know by this point that he's not the guy to be throwing in that scenario. And you really got to kind of ride your top arm a little bit more as you go down the stretch. Yeah, Gorzolani is literally your worst option out of the pen. And yet he continues to be, you know, almost first out of the pen in games that, you know, if the Tigers are behind, it's still a winnable game at that point. I, I just, yeah. you you keep talking about how we're, you know, within earshot of the wild card and we want to get our hopes up and we don't want to get our hopes up. Hopes up. If, if we're going to stay within spitting distance of this thing, he's got to, he's got to play like he actually wants to win. And, and like I said last week, the strategy is bring your best arms out of the pen first and let them pitch a little bit longer than you are. I, we're we're going to say, you know, 
he seems to have maybe adjusted this somewhat over the last couple of games. And I, I saw, it wasn't last night, it was the night before, um, when the Tigers won that game, I was noticing how he tends to manage the bullpen in winning situations when the Tigers are actually ahead. And I still don't like the way he does it because I think he burns way too many arms in the process instead of, again, going with, hey, let's bring, say, Alex Wilson into the game and, and ride him until he can't pitch. Then we'll go to Blaine Hardy. Then we'll go to Al Albuquerque and we should be out of the game by then. He burns these guys so quickly. You know, it's I'll bring in Hardy and get one out. Wilson comes in and gets two outs. Then, I, you know, that's, you know, it might get you through the game and you can look at it and say, great, awesome management. But over management is not good management. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and we saw a little bit of that last night too. You know, you had, you know, whether after Brad Ausmus had been ejected, whether it was him or Gene Lamont uh, working through the situation, you had, you know, Tom Gorzolani come in to face one batter, Al- Albuquerque come in to face a couple batters, Blaine Hardy I think came in to face one or two batters, and then he goes to Neftali Ruiz, and you know it worked out in that scenario, and they got through all of that unscathed. Um, it didn't really help the outcome of the game. But, you know, to see them just kind of burn through all those guys, uh, you know, why can't you just try to run through it with one or two of them instead of four and then see where that takes you? No, exactly, because that then becomes the excuse the next night when you're in a garbage arm from the pen and say, well, why didn't you pick somebody better? Well, because I used them yesterday. Yeah, because you burned through like six guys to get through two innings. And what was the point of that when, you know, any two of them could have probably got you to the end of the game successfully? It's... uh, it's a it's a different style of management. I get that, and I, I really really hope that with hopefully a new metrics oriented approach in the front office, I hope that we'll start to see more of those kinds of decisions, uh, you know, being made. The other big news out of the uh, the bullpen sort of area of the park is uh, the call up of one Guido Knudsen. What do we know about Guido? Um, not much, to be honest. You know, I haven't been able to find a lot on exactly what he features. I believe he, you know, has kind of the usual mid-90s fastball that we have seen from uh, Tigers pitchers and bullpen arms in the past. Uh, he's not an awfully big guy. Uh, he's listed at 6'1 and 185 pounds, uh, but I believe Cameron Kaiser, uh, one of our writers who has worked with the Mudheads, said that he might even be a little bit smaller than that. So it's uh, you know definitely kind of an unusual uh, path to the big leagues for him. He was uh, drafted in the 28th round in 2011, uh, but has really kind of rocketed through the system this year with a pretty good season. Um, you know he's striking out almost a batter per inning. The control is still a little bit off for him, but you know to see you know someone someone new get a shot is always kind of fun. Yeah, I, I do recall that he pitched uh, a couple years ago uh, for the West Michigan Whitecaps, and of course I go to a lot of those games. I definitely remember him being on the roster and pitching in some of those games, um, but he obviously didn't leave a huge impression on me in terms of, oh yeah, definitely that guy is going to come up and help you know help the Tigers at some point or be a good trade chip. I seem to remember him being fairly reliable, but I, I yeah, I couldn't tell you the stuff that he featured or where he sat in terms of velocity or anything like that. I just like the fact that he's named Guido, but it looks like Guido. And this is going to be absolute hell on the broadcasters, especially Rod Allen and Jim Price. Oh, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Uh, I really hope that you're able to record whatever Jim Price calls him the first time he comes into the game. Um, And we'll (laughs) see, we'll see what kind of things, uh, what kind of internet beams pop up as well. Um, I remember that I posted a, uh, a gif of uh, one of the Jersey Shore characters or something like that in the post when Guido was called up. Uh, so it'll it'll be fun to see just how the internet takes of that. 
So we get some Guido shot first memes. Yeah, Star Wars. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I went there, and I went there first. So I want full credit when that actually comes out. All right, and that is going to just about do it for our high and tight segment. When we come back from the break, we are into the mob scene at home and taking our listener questions, and we're going to talk about what was the worst trade Dave Dombrowski ever made for the Tigers when we come back. Swing the fly ball, left field, deep, going back, Cabrera, looking up, and it's gone, a home run! James McCann with the walk-off winner! Number three, rounding third, exchanges the low ten with Dave Clark, and into the mob scene at home. All right, it's time to go into the mob scene at home and answer some of our listener questions. Of course, you can reach us uh, with these questions on the website. You can reach us through Twitter at Bless You Boys. You can send them to me at HookslideBYB on Twitter. You can send them to Rob at uh, BYBRob on Twitter, and the email address is still BYBTigers at gmail.com if i'm not mistaken any of those uh venues that you can use to send us your questions and we'll try to feature those on the show and get those questions answered to kick things off we've got rob lippett who wants to know what are your thoughts on whether or not jd martinez should be batting fourth and victor martinez fifth if you're creating a lineup based on like the most efficient way possible yeah you would like to see martinez batting or victor uh, jd martinez batting ahead of victor martinez um, I think that the two of them, you know, have really kind of gone in opposite directions. Uh, you know, JD's been hitting well for most of the season, while Victor Martinez, after that little hot streak we saw before the All Star break, has really kind of struggled and fallen off again. Um, but at the same time, I think if you plug in, you know, a given lineup into, I don't know, there's probably some program on the internet that creates your most efficient lineup possible. He has something crazy like Miguel Cabrera leading off so that he gets the most plate appearances. So, you know, I'm not going to argue over lineup construction that much. Ninth and Miguel Cabrera is playing left field or something like that. I think that, you know, complaints about the lineup are a little bit overblown. They're still going to happen. Um, but at the same time, you know, teams still kind of respect Victor Martinez. And I think he's been hitting better within the last, you know, week or two. Um but I don't know if it's you know a huge huge deal that teams are making or that fans are making it out to be. Yeah, I, I I'm with you on the idea of saying that it's probably not worth arguing too much over lineup construction, but just raw by the numbers. I ran a couple of different calculations on this, and here's here's what I came up with. Victor Martinez is coming to the plate with men on base, not necessarily in scoring position, but just men on base. He's he's experiencing that in 53 percent of his uh, plate appearances right now. And uh, JD is only seeing that in 45% of his plate appearances. So Victor is certainly seeing more opportunities with men on base. Uh, If you want to look at it with just runners in scoring position, Victor is seeing that in 32% of his appearances, and JD is only in 25%. So certainly Victor is getting more of the opportunities with, uh, with runners on base or in scoring position or either one of those two. In terms of what they're doing in those situations... Uh, Victor Martinez averages 0.34 RBIs per plate appearance when when he's got a man on base. JD is averaging 0.43 uh, RBIs per plate appearances when he's got uh, a man on base. So yeah, you you there is definitely a difference, and it's it's I guess how do you kind of they're, they're crossed. Those numbers are crossed, and it's not probably a good thing that Victor is having more opportunities and producing less fewer runs 
in those situations. J.D. Martinez is seeing fewer opportunities with men on base, but he's still producing more uh, runs in those situations. So, yeah, you might see a slight uptick. Um, you know, the margin between .34 runs per plate appearance and .43 isn't necessarily huge. Uh, you would definitely get some more, I think, run scoring production if you flipped those two, but I, I'm not sure if it's enough to, you know, light the building on fire, so to speak. No, it's not. Um, and if you take kind of the full quote unquote saber approach with this, uh, I believe that they say now that your best hitter should be hitting second. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, with Miguel Cabrera in that spot, do does he get the same kind of RBI opportunities that he gets third? I think there are a lot of different ways to kind of approach lineup construction. Um, and well, yeah, I think that easy an easy fix would be flipping Dady ahead of Victor. Um, there, it's not necessarily a black and white scenario. Jason Kazar asks, in your opinion, what are the worst Dave Dombrowski trades as the Tigers general manager? Special hat tip for me, just learning that Dombrowski traded Randy Johnson for Mark Langston when he was the Expos general manager. Rob, what is Dombrowski's worst trade as a Tiger? And you can't say Doug Fister. Yeah, uh, I I remember before the show, we were kind of trying to avoid the low-hanging fruit. (laughs) That is the the second Doug Fister trade there, um, because I think that that one is kind of far and away the worst. Um, one I got, we're going to go back a little bit, is when uh, Dave, when Dabrowski traded Omar Infante to the Cubs for outfielder Jock Jones. Uh, Jones produced negative 1.2 wins above replacement, replacement, if you will, in part of the 2008 season. Well, Infante, who wasn't necessarily playing very well at the time, uh, put up 11 wins above replacement in the next four seasons before Dombrowski went and traded for him again. Uh, when he was with the Marlins? It's a difficult question to answer because obviously Dave Dombrowski has had a huge track record of success, not many failures. And if we're going to eliminate the Fister trade, you know, as the low-hanging fruit, which is just sort of a fun challenge for the two of us, I think, because I obviously think that's that's the answer. The answer is the Fister trade. When you look at the fact that Fister turned into Ian Kroll, Steve Lombardozzi, and Robbie Ray, Steve Lombardozzi turned into Alex Gonzalez. <laughs> Ian Kroll has turned into... Robbie Ray turned into Shane Green. God help us all. And then, and then, to add insult to injury, Robbie Ray has gone and turned around and uh, turned in a very, very good season worth 1.6 F WAR so far this year. He's like striking out almost eight per nine. I think right now is is his K rate. So, yeah, the the Fister trade is just. I, I called it earlier. It's the white elephant Christmas gift that just keeps on giving. And we still have not seen the end of that yet. But if I had to pick something that's not Fister, you could go to, um, you could certainly look at uh, trading Jason Grilly away to the Colorado Rockies for Zach Simons. Simons just expired, never turned into anything. Grilly went on to have some pretty darn good years with the Pirates in 2012 and 2013, uh, putting up like 1.6 FWAR in 20, uh, 2013, I think it was. Uh, but you could also, I think, easily point to uh, just recently trading Jonathan Crawford and Eugenio Suarez to Reds for Alfredo Simon. And I was just comparing just Suarez to Simon in terms of their F war that they're putting up. Simon's at 1.5. Suarez is at 1.4. None of that looks uh, really, I don't know. So yeah, Dave has done a great job. Mr. Dombrowski has done a fine job over the years, but boy, there were some stinkers in there. And, uh, Really, really want to express my thanks to Jason uh, Kazar for making us dig into that stink pit. Really, really appreciate that. Frank Redmond asks, with the plenitude of young arms now in the organization, 
who, if any, will be shut down due to innings limit? I think that the uh, Daniel Norris injury kind of eliminated the Tigers' need to potentially shut him down towards the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he may or may not have been one of the candidates to kind of see his innings taper off as we get into September. Um, but now I think that they there's been talk that the Tigers may try to mi- limit Matt Boyd's innings. Right. Uh, of course, then they go and run on, run him out in a relief appearance before <laughs> sending him on to his next start. So they're not really is limiting Brad, things much yet. Is Brad Osmus just like drunk every game? Is that how that comes about? Uh, I I don't know. I just don't know at this point. Um, but, but uh, you know, Boyd may be one of them. Um, I don't necessarily think that someone like Buck Farmer would be a candidate for that. He spent, a, you know, a decent amount of time in the Tigers' bullpen, so he's kind of been limited in that regard as far as innings go. Um, and then I'm not even sure who, if any, would in the minors would be. So if there's one guy that will be shut down for an innings limit, I think it would be Matt Boyd, but we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I think I would have said Matt Boyd right off the top of my head as well. I mean, like you said, the the issue with Daniel Norris going down kind of uh, complicates things a little bit. But I, yeah, I, I'm going to go with Matt Boyd on that as well. And and actually, my theory on Brad Osmus is that he used to be a catcher. I think he's just been concussed, and that's that's what we're dealing with. Abigail Devins asks, uh, "Tell us everything we need to know about Wolfman." Obviously, referring to Randy Wolf, who will pitch uh, today. This is because we're recording on Saturday. How is he going to fit into the rotation? Is he going to is he going to get hurt like everyone else? Is he going to increase my alcohol intake? Well, it's probably a good bet that he's going to increase a little bit of alcohol intake in Tigers fans. You know, he's thirty nine years old. Thirty nine years old today, actually. So happy birthday to him, even though he's not listening. Um, but. Uh, you know, it, with him, he's only thrown, I think it was 25 innings since the 2012 season in the major leagues. Um, he's, you know, pitched all year down in uh, in Buffalo in the Toronto farm system. Um, and has actually put up a pretty good number. His ERA is around two and a half uh, down there. But at the same time, he's pitching against, you know, a bunch of young kids and organizational fodder. Um, so it's not exactly the highest level of competition for him down there. You know, a guy who is a former all-star, actually, I was kind of surprised by um, so he's not exactly facing, you know, top level talent down there, but it is nice to see him putting up some solid numbers there. Uh, so we'll see if it translates to any success. Uh, I was looking at the numbers for today's game and Wolf is kind of a fly ball pitcher. His fly ball rate is around 40% for his career and the Rangers haven't hit that well against left-handed pitching. So maybe he kind of gets off to a good start. Um, but you know, if he can just eat five or six innings and not totally crap the bed, I think I'll be happy with that. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with don't crap the bed is really what we hope to get out of the Wolfman. Whether he gets hurt like everyone else, I mean, like you said, he's he's no spring chicken, as they say. Uh, but I, I don't think it's really going to be an issue because they, don't, I, I don't think they're going to hang on to him. He's not like a 2016, you know, hopeful. I think they're using him to fill some innings for the next couple of weeks until they get Sanchez off the disabled list and maybe Norris off the disabled list. So probably not. Um, but if he increases your alcohol intake, well, you know, you can send him a thank you card later because that would be awfully nice of him. Uh, we have Tadamas at Tadamas uh, on Twitter asking, with two starters down, can the Band-Aids hold out long enough for a miracle, i.e. making the playoffs? I don't think so. Uh, we already kind of talked about this earlier, that the Tigers have a lot of teams to jump over uh, 
to even get back into kind of the the top end of the wild card race there. Um, you know, they've got plenty of games left against these teams, but at the same time, they haven't really shown us any any semblance of you know being able to string together a winning streak. Um, you know, they had a chance last night to win four games in a row for the first time, I think it since April, um, and, you know, kind of blew that by not scoring a run against Colby Lewis, of all pitchers. Um, so, yeah, I just I just don't see it happening. Yeah, I'm just going to answer that quite simply and just say no. No, the Band-Aids aren't meant to hold out long enough for miracles. That's not what a Band-Aid's for, and it, no. It's it's not going to work out that way. I don't think uh, it was it was going to be a miracle for them to make the playoffs with the rotation that they had as it was, taking away two I think reasonably solid uh, pieces of that rotation certainly does not make this any easier. Um, if you want to believe in the miracle, that's cool. I mean, I'm not going to say you shouldn't. I mean, it's it's it gives you something to root for, but I I'd necess- I would not put any any kind of real money on that. How funny would it be though? How funny would it be if they actually pulled it off? And ended up playing the wild card game against Toronto, and you have, <laughs> if you ha- and you have Randy Wolf starting against David Price in the wild card game. That that would that be a total would, awesomeness move, wouldn't it? He wouldn't go Verlander be, Price. He'd run. Well, let's Verlander has to pitch one game one sixty two to get you into the game, <laughs> and then you have to run Randy Wolf out there. I think it'd be hilarious. Oh, it would be. It would be. I mean, obviously. Rob and I are, I think, on the same page in terms of saying it's it's not likely that they're even going to make the playoffs. But obviously, if that happened, I would be so freaking happy to be wrong and and to have seen the miracle take place. So absolutely, I'm rooting for it to happen. I am just not banking on it. I'm not making any plans on the calendar. I'm I'm making dinner plans, you know, throughout October. Not saying like I usually do. Hang on, I need to see what the playoff schedule looks like before I, you know, commit to anything. So, see, may, maybe I should make plans because the last couple times mm-hmm. I've made plans, I've actually gone to the playoffs. I believe I was gone during the 2012 World Series, uh, and I know I was I was in October when they went to the playoffs. Um, of course, they've lost both of those series, so maybe I maybe I shouldn't make plans. I don't know. Make the plans, and if they happen to you know get canceled, if you have to come back and say sorry, you know I can't, whatever it is, because there's a ALDS game three or game four going on, then that's that's awesome. But I, I would say go ahead and make your make your reservations at wherever you're going to go eat that night. Uh, Mark Sands at SharkMGS on Twitter says, how realistic of an option is Buck Farmer for the bullpen in 2016? I think his stuff plays better at one or two innings at a time. I think a lot of pitchers would have their stuff play one or two innings at a time. Um, you know, with Farmer, he's still fairly young, and I would like to see the organization of him at least another year in the rotation to see if he could kind of be that back-end starter for them. Um, you know, it's possible that he or someone else turns into kind of the next Wade Davis or whatever and just becomes a dominant reliever. Um, but, you know, Farmer has kind of the stuff to be a starter. He's got, you know, a good fastball. He doesn't necessarily locate it too well, but um, that's kind of one of the things he's going to have to work on. His changeup is pretty good, uh, and if he can really kind of develop any semblance of a breaking ball, um, you know, I'd like to think that's kind of a little bit of an easier thing to for a pitcher to develop because that's more based on mechanics and whatnot than feel, quote-unquote, like a change-up. Um, so we'll see if he can kind of get that together and become, you know, a solid back-end starter for them. Um, you know, I think that, you know, he's still only two years removed from being drafted by the organization. Uh, a lot of his peers, you know, the former start of the year 
last year in the Whitecaps rotation down in Single A, and all of his peers down there uh, are still pitching, you know, in you know High A Lakeland or even up at Double A. Um, so you know he's kind of ahead of the curve as far as that goes, and you know putting up solid numbers at Triple A this year. So I think that you know they they deserve to be a little bit more patient with him and see if he can still be a starter. Yeah, I guess I would approach that question from a different angle. Um, I'm certainly all in favor of taking a decent starter, a starter who might be, you know, a six on a scale of ten, and seeing if he can play in the bullpen. I definitely think that's um, it's been a formula for success going, you know, way back to the 70s and 80s. And we talk about Willie Hernandez all the time. Well, he he began life as a starter. The Dennis Eckersley experiment that turned into what it is today was all because he was a really good starter who was fading, and then they said, well, can we extend his shelf life? So yeah, in principle, Farmer's not necessarily cutting it as a starter, but could he pull it together in the in the, in the the pen? Here's my issue with that. He's really not good in either place yet, and he might develop into something that's good you know, out of the pen or as a starter, but right now, he's not really a good option either either place. His first time through the lineup as a starter... Uh, opponents are have an OPS of 878 against him, and it just gets worse every time through the lineup. Till the, the third time through the lineup, they're hitting like 1,439 is is the OPS. It's slightly better as a reliever. His first time through the lineup as a reliever, the OPS against him is 793. It's it's slightly better than that 878 as a starter. But get this, second time through as a reliever, it it balloons to 1,636. So it's just not really stunning numbers either way you look at it. Starter, reliever, I'm I'm with you, Robin, saying let's see if we can get this guy to develop, maybe work on the secondary pitches, get a little bit better with his, his arsenal, and see if maybe he can play as a starter. And if not, then then maybe you look at the bullpen, but only if he's putting up decent numbers in either of those two places. One last question here. Aurelio Fan asks, uh, please engage in some idle speculation. I am haunted by what might have been. Boy, aren't we all. Suppose the Tigers don't trade Price, Cepedes, and Soria, but the injuries to the other players are as they actually occurred. McGee is back in fine form, but Sanchez is on the DL. No other roster changes that haven't actually happened. Would we be in the playoff race now? I really want to believe that this was the right decision, obviously referring to the decision to sell at the deadline and uh, and not buy at the deadline. Do you think the Tigers would be in it if they still had Price, Cespedes, Soria? I don't know that they would be that much better off with those guys right now. Um, you know, you look at the numbers, and in games that Daniel Norris and Matt Boyd have started, I think the Tigers are still humming along around 500. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with them, kind of the problem all season long, hasn't necessarily been, I mean, it has kind of been these back-end guys, but at the same time you've got Anibal Sanchez, who would still be there and not pitching well. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got the offense not showing up when Justin Berlander pitches. Uh Ever since July, ever since July first, the Tigers are two and seven in games that Verlander starts, um, and that covers you know nine nine games there, and he's got an ERA of three and a half. Um, so there are a lot of issues showing up, and I don't necessarily know that having one guy uh, in the lineup in Cespedes is going to change that as far as from an offensive standpoint. You know they lost Miguel Cabrera for six weeks, um, and that's you know a huge hole that they really started to feel towards the end of that when they were barely scraping together four runs per game. So I think that it was the right decision to sell, uh, especially the way they've set themselves up for 2016 and beyond with some nice arms uh, in, the, in the system now, not just with Norris and Boyd, but also uh, Luis Sessa and Michael Fulmer, who they got from the Mets, um, as well as kind of an interesting prospect in Jacoby Jones. 
So we'll see what exactly that brings going forward. But uh, I, I don't really have much regret uh, that they tr- that they decided to sell at the deadline. Yeah, absolutely not. I, I think they made the right decision. I think, um, you know, like you said, the Tigers aren't scoring runs for Verlander. The Tigers, you know, seem to score okay for David Price, but even he pitched some gems that the offense just snoozed on and ended up losing. The bullpen continues to be an issue with or without Soria, honestly, because even with Soria in the picture, it was Joaquin Soria and then garbage for the most part. And I don't trust Brad Osmus to even know what to do with the right pieces out there anyway. Uh, missing Cespedes from left field defensively, I think, really hurts them. But I don't think it hurts them offensively. They seem to be humming along just fine. The the issues, um, I think, were, were far more uh, deep-rooted than, than that. And having simply uh, really had just Bryce Cespedes and Soria back in, in the rotation in the lineup on the roster, honestly, I don't think it makes that big of a difference. Maybe they're playing just barely above 500 consistently instead of, you know, constantly trying to catch up to 500 consistently. They'd still, I think, lose out this year, and then they wouldn't have any kind of return for David Price, for Jonas Cespedes, for Joaquin Soria, who are probably all going to be, you know, walking in 2016 anyway. So, yeah, absolutely the right decision. Don't sweat it, Aurelio fan. We we didn't really miss out on anything, I don't think. Their chances to uh, make the playoffs this year maybe slightly less than, than they were with Price, Cespedes, and Soria, but not that big of a difference, I don't think. Thanks again for all the questions from our listeners. Again, you can submit those to us uh, through email at bybytigers at gmail.com. You can get them to us on Twitter at Bless You Boys. You can send them to me or to Rob, BYB Rob on Twitter or Hookslide BYB. And uh, so that'll wrap up our Into the Mob Scene at Home segment. When we get back from the short break, we'll wrap the show up with the seventh inning Kvetch. We're going to talk about what makes you a diehard Tigers fan. Three now. Here's the 2-2. Oh, boy. Curveball grabbed the outside corner. Victor not happy. Pitch that he felt went around the plate. You rarely see Victor complain. Brad Osmus better get out there quickly. Oh, and Victor got tossed. All right, and we are into our final segment, the seventh inning kvetch, although I don't think we're going to be doing too much kvetching or bitching today necessarily. I want to talk a little bit, Rob, this is a question that I threw out there on Twitter uh, yesterday or the day before. I thought the days just sort of run together anymore for me. Uh, the question of what, what makes you a diehard Tigers fan? And I put that question out there uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, because, first of all, I look back at my own experience, and probably you have somewhat of a similar experience. I don't think we're that far apart in age, um, where growing up, you really only had the option of following the home team. You know, you you could read the papers to get the box scores for other teams if you wanted to, but certainly as far as television, um, you know, the internet, it wasn't as advanced at that point. You couldn't say, be born in Michigan and decide to become a Boston Red Sox fan and really keep up with what the Boston Red Sox were doing, you know, day to day. But there's a lot of reasons, I think, why you become a fan of a certain team, and it seems to me that it might be um, largely due to your geography, the state that you're born in. Uh, It could be a family tradition, something that's handed down to you. Certainly for me, when I sat down to watch my first Tigers game, I asked my dad, which team are we rooting for? And he said, the Tigers. From that day on, father knows best, and now I'm a Tigers fan. Um, So there's, there's lots of reasons, I think, why you might end up as a fan, I guess, what got me thinking about it was seeing how technology has changed the approach to fandom 
I mean, certainly we have the site, bless you boys, you can come on our site and uh, participate in live game threads and root along for the Tigers, you know, with virtual fans, so to speak. You can follow them on MLB TV and watch every single game. If you're out of market, you can follow along on Twitter. You have all these options. You can, you know, get beyond just baseball cards and go to baseball reference or fan graphs and really keep track on, you know, the stats and how each player is performing day to day to day. So the question, Rob, I think I'll pitch it to you this way. Uh, the next generation coming up, are we going to see more and more fans that aren't necessarily rooting for the local home team precisely for that reason? So, uh, you know, say next 20 years, you've got the next Mike Trout up and coming and uh, children of that generation decide they want to follow that Mike Trout type player and they end up rooting for this team that's not even really at all associated with their geography just because simply technology has now made that possible. I think you'll get some of that, but I think it's not going to be as earth-moving as you kind of make it out to be. Um, you know, growing up in Michigan, you know, my family were Tigers fans. My friends were Tigers fans. And I think that that carries a lot of weight, especially when you go through kind of your childhood and your teenage years. Uh, you want to fit in with friends and things like that. And I think that that plays a big role. You know, people were saying, oh, we're going to go watch the Tigers game. Um, you know, they still have that option on TV versus where you do have to kind of jump through a little bit of a hoop uh, to get, you know, MLB TV or something like that. You know, I don't see many parents springing for MLB TV for their 12-year-old or anything like that yet. Um, so I think that it's not going to change that much. But, yeah, you might see some fans seeing a little bit more of, uh, you know, maybe someone is an Angels fan in Michigan or something because of Mike Trout or what have you. Um, but, you know, with uh, with kind of the way that fandom works as this kind of collective collective idea hmm. um i think that that is still going to be you know as it's always been kind of geographically based or you know how, what have you yeah it was funny to get the responses and i appreciate everyone kind of responding to that question on twitter because as much as i think the technology plays some part in that and that like i said it, the next generation growing up can literally choose whatever team they want to be a fan of and swear allegiance to that team based on any number of reasons. Maybe you like the uniforms or you like the star player or you like the ballpark. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, you know, why you might want to swear allegiance to a particular team. Technology makes it possible now to go ahead and follow that team and get some of that kind of community fan experience. Like I said, it's probably mostly virtual at this point, but that, you know, that can account for a lot of your, um, you know, sort of FaceTime, I guess, you know, if I wanted to, I can go to RoyalsReview.com, our SB Nation sister site for the Kansas City Royals, and I can go hang out in their game threads and totally be a Royals fan next year if I wanted to. But these responses that I got, Robert, just I thought they were so interesting because I want to say probably nine out of ten of these responses were all exactly to that point that... Um, my dad rooted for the Tigers. My dad and my grandpa rooted for the Tigers. I, I have memories as a child of listening to Ernie Harwell with my dad, you know, this kind of thing. It's all very much, I think, rooted in kind of a, a passed-on family tradition. And I, I find that really interesting because if that's the case, that thing, that kind of tends to be unbreakable. It does. Um, you know, I had a similar experience uh, when I was a kid. I would often be at my grandma's house, uh, you know, on weekdays when my parents were at work, um, and we would watch the Tigers game there every single night. You know, she was a diehard Tigers fan, and that's kind of how I came up through it. Um, you know, when I was growing up, kind of as a kid in the mid-90s, we had a lot of Braves games on TV, uh, you know, between TBS and TNT when Ted Turner owned the team. Uh, we saw a lot of their games, and they were better than the Tigers, so I was 
kind of a Braves fan growing up. Um, you know, John Smoltz went to my high school, uh, Waverly High School in Lansing, Michigan. So that kind of, there, there was a little bit of a connection there. But at the same time, you know, you had, you know, just kind of this family bond with the Tigers, and that's really stuck far more than even having, you know, this accessible option with the Braves right in front of me. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it certainly seems to be the uh, the common experience, judging by these responses. And I'll, I'll just read out two of my absolute favorite responses, because like, like I said, a lot of them were, were very much the same uh, and resonate with your tradition, I think, and my tradition and experience. But this one I got from Tom, who is at Tom underscore in underscore Zville, said, my dad took me to my first game in 57. We lost. Both my granddads were Tigers fans in the 20s. I had no choice. How awesome is that? <laughs> I, I need to, I, this kind of makes me want to go call my grandpa, you know, just kind of tell me again what it was like to watch, you know, some of these players that I never had a chance to see back in the, you know, in the 40s and even in the 30s. The second one came from Bruce Bumbelow at Bruce B sixty three on Twitter, says grew up in the Detroit area, have followed the Tigers since the age of seven. I'm now seventy. They're the only team for me. I mean that is <laughs> if that doesn't warm your heart. And and by the way, Bruce, please get off of Twitter, man. You're seventy. There's so many so many better things to be doing than answering my stupid questions on this uh social media. <laughs> but really appreciate those responses. Uh, any final thoughts to add there, Robert? Do you want to take it a different direction? Is there something you'd like to kvetch about before we wrap this thing up? No. Um, well, a little bit. I do. I always kind of appreciate when we get you know Twitter messages or emails from uh, you know people on the site or whatever, um, and they kind of qualify it with you know I've been a Tigers fan since 1965 or something like that. Um, you know, it really is kind of. It, it, it's kind of funny that you know that that's how they quantify their fandom, but at the same time, you know, it's very interesting to see you know these people that have followed the team for you know so long, and I guess it kind of makes me wonder, you know, with all this technology in front of me and this easily accessible uh, option of having you know tigers at my fingertips, despite living in D.C., you know, will I continue to carry that fandom throughout my life? Will I change it up and become you know a fan of some other team down the road? Um, and it's just just kind of a, a nice little thought to have. Yeah, it's interesting because I meant to bring that up too. Because you living in D.C., you're not even here in Michigan. Of course, you had your roots here, so that explains you know again that kind of family tradition being passed on. Uh, but I, there was another Twitter response that I'd gotten. I, I'm sorry, I don't have the name in front of me. Um, but the the gentleman had said that he grew up here, moved to Montana, and the Tigers are kind of his way of maintaining sort of connection with home, you know, with family that that kind of thing. But Maybe maybe you'll find that that's the case for you. Maybe not. Yeah, uh, and I definitely get a little bit of that too. Um, especially, you know, having first moved here. God, it's been five years now. Um, you know, that was kind of my connection to being back home, keeping up with, you know, the team that all my friends are following and everything. Um, you know, now that I consider DC more home than Mich- Michigan, actually, um, you know, it's still kind of been my you know connection back to Michigan is having the Tigers there in front of me. Yeah, and uh, certainly being a Michigan person myself, and I, I think it's already kind of established for the next generation. For me, my son has you know already kind of adopted the Tigers as his team, and again, probably for the same reasons, because we sat down when he was three years old, watched the game, and I said, hey, that team with the D, that's the one we're rooting for. That's just how it gets started. It gets in your blood, and if you're especially masochistic, then you really hang on through those rough rides and uh, stick with the team for a long, long time. 
maybe I'll just turn this whole thing around next podcast and give my spiel on why bandwagon fans are actually pretty cool. And then I'll just really irritate everyone. <laughs> so I think that should just about do it for this episode of The Voice of the Turtle. Uh, we are going to be taking the next week off just uh, because of personal schedules and vacations and that sort of thing. But we will be back uh, the week after that. So you can follow us online again at uh, www.blessyouboys.com is the website on Twitter at Bless You Boys. Rob, you're on Twitter at BYB. BYB Rob, correct. BYB Rob. I'm on Twitter at Hookslide BYB. Am I forgetting anything? Facebook. Like us on Facebook yes. at BYB.Tigers. Yes, absolutely like us on Facebook. We are attempting to absolutely dominate the uh, Facebook game. We want to try and get to just, I don't know, we should pick a, a prize number for the end of the year and you know give out prizes to whoever becomes our billionth like on the page or something well we've got a lot of them now so i don't know what kind of prizes we'll give out you know <laughs> personal personal messages kurt will kurt will send you a personalized <laughs> voice message oh, if no. you like the site yep that's right and because just, kurt never listens he, to this podcast yeah, he he's not going to listen this far so he will never, never know, know. <laughs> it'll be great if kurt is listening he gave up at about like minute number 30 second segment oh boy so let's wrap it up that's gonna do it we will see you the next time on the voice of the turtle <laughs>